Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hello, welcome. So happy you're here. Today we're talking to an old friend, Eric Jacobson. He is an Ashtanga yoga practitioner for many, many years. He's a spiritual seeker, a student of Vedanta, and he's also an incredible artist uh, who right now is continuing to specialize in custom tattooing of the highest caliber. And so we're talking about art, we're talking philosophy, we're talking Ashtanga yoga, and how this all relates to his story and also tattooing, looking at the connection between all of these different things. So I know you're going to love this episode. It's one of our unique episodes where we thread together many different themes and many different areas of integration, art, philosophy, yoga, and I can't wait to share it with you. So let's get going. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony, and I'm here with my co-host, Russell Case. Harmony, Dos Equis is pleased to announce the winner of the Most Interesting Man of the Year Award yet again. And they've given us $35 to promote our guest today. Uh, it's you can if you thirty five dollars thirty five bucks if you type in Dosecki's into the show notes from Instagram into the comments into the comment section they will send you thirty five dollars or actually it's going to be divided by the number of people who type in the show notes oh. so don't get too excited but like thirty five people anyway most interesting man of the year Eric Jacobson on the po- on the podcast with no, us today. No. What a horrible Ooh. thing to live up to. <laughs> You're worth $35, Eric. 35 pretty... bucks. Hey, I mean, I'll take the beer. I don't know. Yeah, I will send it to you. Yeah, that's, I think, I think that's well, probably about six equivalent, packs. right? Yeah. yeah. So I spent about an hour writing this introduction this morning. Can I read it to oh, you? Be so oh, excited. God, sure. Yeah. Okay. I'm so curious. I'm so curious what you're going <laughs> to, the way you're going to pitch it. <clears throat> Eric Jacobson is a multi-dimensional being who imbues the sacred into the most utterly profane of career choices, that of the tattooist. <laughs> Eric dropped representational figurative painting in pursuit of a medium in which he could, could express deeper felt experiences, a dialogue between subject and artist. He is currently invested into the mandala, which allows him to explore the non-duality and connection of art as inquiry. Eric is often mistaken for Aaron Rodgers and or Ryan Gosling. <laughs> Eric, you and I practiced Ashtanga yoga together in San Francisco. I'm not sure I would say I was your teacher as you were quite the handful, but I adjusted you loads, mate. How, how the hell are you? I'm good. Yeah, used to used to stand on me. I'd call that an adjustment. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I was your little teacher. In air quotes, you an were, adjustment. Yeah. <laughs> you, you allowed me near you in your presence. Yeah, well, same, same, same. <laughs> Equal Melissa, Melissa seemed like to your your wife. Melissa seemed like she was uh, really happy there in my Ashtanga yoga room. 
Yeah, that we well, we started at um, Heidi Lender and her partner at the time, John. Oh, yeah. They had yeah. a little small studio across the street from Yoga Garden before the donut you were there. Yeah, donut he used to teach at that studio. Yeah, did I, you? Did I, you? I taught yeah, across what? the street, and you came to be there. He taught at Heidi Heidi's Lender place. of Lender Bagels. Uh, that was that at a IGA near you. I did not know it was the same. It's the same, yeah. Did yeah, know yeah. That. yeah. yeah that's we, how I, she acquired the building. Well, I went. I went from Clay. I was working. I was working with Clayton, and he closed. Yes, uh, like Green Path. Green, green Path. Yes. Yeah, Amazing. and then I went to. Uh, I went and I studied a little bit with Leah Nicole oh, over there at Open in, Door when she was there, and the then. Room. Oh no, no 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 no! Not... She was in the Castro. Right, right. And then, um, yeah, and then Vance over in Berkeley a little bit when I could get over. His classes were always like, they started at, you know, 7 a.m. And the BART didn't even start running until 8. So <laughs> if, I, if I caught the very first BART, I could get like the last half hour of class or something. Oh. But Brutal. It, was, it was always fun to just see him. And I had a friend over there that also practiced. So we would hang out once in a while. But, but so yeah, I ended, up, I ended up over at Heidi's. And then they close that place and then yoga garden you were doing that and so we kind of just naturally moved over there i think with the mm -hmm. i don't know if it was the whole mysore program that moved yes yeah, sid thought sid said to me the funniest choice the funniest thing we could do is go across the street so that she could still see us every day <laughs> <laughs> that sounds um, like something sid would do i i never i never approached life this way before i was always like sort of more shame-based Oh, and he was like, no, no, no. She needs to see us. This would be funny. I'm like, she'll, oh. she'll think it's hilarious. <laughs> she did not. She did not. We, we could see her in her underwear every morning. And there we were Sorry. doing our little sun salutations. Yeah. She, so must, you, have, we, she must have I claimed it. you and you took, you came over with us. You claimed me. Yes. You staked a claim. No, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, I kind of went in and out of some of the Ashtanga things like there was, there was always like some other new Mysore group starting somewhere and then it wouldn't last for very long. And then there was ones that were there for a long time and you would go and try and, you know, and if you weren't like already like really into the community, it was really hard to kind of get anything from that. Um, so mm -hmm. it was that you were, we were close and it was regular and it was able to do six days a week and actually do the practice that way. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was. It's a nice little community we had there for a while. I remember I used to mm -hmm. I used to let Sid take the second class and I would I would practice and I got I, got, I finally got some good rhythm going in my practice after mm -hmm. I'd had a bad injury for a while. And you, you came up to me and you said, you know, it's amazing. You you meet some people who really make the practice look easy. <laughs> and you really don't do that. You really make the practice look really hard. <laughs> It looks really hard when you do it. I was just guessing your fault. Uh huh. It was every day like that. Sarcasm, yeah. Russell. Sarcasm. Mm -hmm. It was heavily every day. Contrarian sarcasm. Uh, good I'm just you. not. I was. I've never been good at it though. The yoga practice. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> that's why, what maybe that's good? why I stopped doing asana. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you stop? Uh, I mean, I, I stopped doing the Ashtanga practice because um, mm -hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't working in my body anymore. There was too many, I, there was too many things that were just coming up that were just like, it's like wrist things and little niggly things in my hips and my knee. And 
And then Melissa hurt her knee around that time. She did time. it in my in my class. Yeah, it and so she ended up having yeah in the corner so of the room. She, yeah, so she. Yeah. Um, I think recovering from that, we just we weren't really going to practice, and so I mean, I can't not move and stretch. I mean, I have to do something, so I still do that. I just sort of look at it as like more of a um, a free movement exploration every time I do it. So it's like, mm-hmm. what's, what do I, especially with tattooing, I have to like keep my shoulders and neck and all that mm-hmm. from going nuts. So it's just, I think it's the, um, there's the, the intensity of the practice is a bit much if you're trying to like do other things in your life, <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't, I'm, I'm, in, I'm always impressed with people who have kids and a job and a still have a practice like that. I just, I don't know how people do that without breaking at some point. I don't think people do that. I don't think people do it for very long. If they do it, you know. Yeah. yeah, a lot. There is a lot of breaking that happens at some point. I think. Yeah, the job part, especially like there's the kids and the Ashtanga yoga, and the job has to suffer, or there's a job and kids and yoga has to suffer, and what's the third one? The job and the yoga and no kids and no kids, which yeah, is yeah. doable. Which is doable, right? <laughs> I, I question that one even because I don't have kids, but that was. I mean, I also like, I had, um, I think I pretty much, so I had been doing Ashtanga for a while and then I got a job working for a sculptor and that was a lot of physical work. So mm. I had to stop my practice, which was somewhere in like second series at the time. Mm-hmm. And then I worked for him for like two years and then I started tattooing. And so I thought, oh, tattooing, I have more time to do yoga. And I started getting back into it and it was like getting tattooed and then working the hours and then trying to, you know, cause most tattooing hours tend to go later yeah. into the night. So it just, my schedule just didn't like work yeah. with it. And then, so I still did it here and there, but it just kind of fell off slowly and got replaced by all these other modalities and things. But, but that's, that's a big part of why I wanted you on the show is at a certain point, I don't know if it was right when before you you started with me or right after, but you showed up pre-diabetic. I had gotten well, yeah, I had gotten um, I had got I've gotten really into like nutrition and diet and stuff because I was having all kinds of stomach problems and digestion stuff. And especially with, you know, with that, with an Ashtanga practice, you really notice like what you ate the night before and all Mm -hmm. those things come up and hopefully they don't come up. And then, (laughs) you know, and so it started to affect like, why am I doing this? You know, like, why am I doing this practice? Why am I eating these foods? Why am I looking at my diet this certain way? And I started to just inquire into like all of that stuff and i just for so i had gone to the doctor to get like full blood lipid panel all of that stuff and they said you you are tending towards that direction so they were like you know you might want i think at the time i was pretty vegetarian and they were like you probably need some more protein you probably need less carbohydrates and more activity but low-grade activity because you're actually quite inflamed which I think was the practice. I think it's just, I was, you know, you're constantly sore all the time when you're right. doing that practice every day. Yeah. So I think I just, I think I felt a little just overtrained at that point. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of, you know, zonked out and it took me a long time to kind of recover physically from that. You know, you also but, had like adrenal, like full adrenal failure. Yeah. Yeah. I had like my, my doctor told me like, you need to sleep as much as you can without getting fired or divorced. <laughs> like, Cause I wasn't, I, I was also having like, um, 
it was right around the time I started tattooing, which was 2008. So I guess I was still, I think I was still with you there. Mm -hmm. And just, um, just before you started with me, just, yeah. And, um, I started getting panic attacks. I started having all of that stuff. So caffeine was a culprit and just the stress of thinking I was going to get fired or something like that. You know, it was just, it was just too much. Um, but I think that like not eating well, like not really thinking about my diet too much. And then I was always trying to lose weight, you know, cause I think that for me, the Ashtanga world kind of pushed that, like the thinner you are, the better your practice will be kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then and, and there's some truth to that, you know, but it's also right. like, where does your body find its, its set point, you know, mm -hmm. and why? Mm -hmm. So I started getting into all of that stuff and, and it just, yeah, it, I had to kind of adjust a lot of things really quick. It's, it seemed like the the arc of your learning was just stratospheric at that point. You were like you were like it was almost like you were studying for a PhD, doing research for a PhD in the amount of of work that you were doing, learning about like say metabolism, blood sugar, yeah. um, muscle development. I wonder, can you talk a little bit about that? Because there was like seems like there was some branches that you were going in that you abandoned, and others that you were you're pursuing like i remember one time you were eating like a like a whole stove pot of rice at one go <laughs> like that was a thing that was important to you at one yeah point. And yeah, other times like, yeah 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 what yeah that no called? i well so okay so when you refeed yeah carbohydrate refeed. Carb, carb refeeds yeah you, you so whatever that is tell us what well, that is so, so if you start studying nutrition especially for like athletic performance yeah. Um, versus like, you know, like when some people call about, talk about diet, it's sort of talking about like the natural diet of man, whatever that right. is. <laughs> and diet when you're like working as an athlete or something like, so I consider, you know, doing every, every doctor I talk to is like, if you're spending six days a week doing two hours or more of any kind of strenuous activity, you're, you're working out, you know, you're full blown working out. Yeah. And so they were talking about like, if you want to build muscle, you know, there is a certain amount of protein, certain types of amino acids you need, things like that, that just, you know, are, are more difficult to do if you're vegetarian or vegan. And I had kind of experimented with both of those. So it was for me, it was working out one, it was the moral stuff in my head about being vegetarian or not. Mm -hmm. And um, and then also the dietary and health things of like, well, your genetics are what they are. It doesn't matter what you like, you know, your, your preferences are great. And that's, if you can do that, do that. Great. But it's not, doesn't always work for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I got really into then looking at if I wanted to say build muscle and not put on a lot of fat, how would I do that? So I started seeing, I started finding like bodybuilder type people who had a lot of theories, but they were also like, um, they were really focused on healthy nutrition. Like they weren't in this idea of like drink a gallon of milk a day, like some bodybuilders are, you know, they weren't doing that. So they were doing minimum effective dose of, you know, how much protein do you need? How, you know, how to feed your diet and all that. It kind of became a little obsessive at times because I mm. tend to do that. I tend to dive really deep into a subject and just dig and dig and dig until there's nothing left, you know, but, um, so I had to, you know, like, like there was a time when I was doing like a, a thing, it's called if it fits your macros, where you actually look at your activity every day, you look at what you're doing and you almost plan your meals to the, to the letter of carbs, fats, protein, fiber, all of that. Mm -hmm. And, and you're cycling that also with your activity. So days that you work out, you have more carbs, days do you don't, you don't. 
and I learned a lot about it, but it's like, um, and I learned how to like, you know, you can affect your weight loss and do all of those things. And you, it kind of empowered me to do all those things, but it also showed me how much willpower and planning and strength and concentration it takes to do all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, you meet your edge and you go, okay, I, I don't think I'm a bodybuilder. I can't do that. <laughs> There's no way. So that's yeah, kind of know. the thing that always like gets me when I start thinking about uh, planning so much like that and like yeah. scheduling and like the amount of energy and effort that goes into like counting macros oh, yeah. and micros or calories or like the amount of time you're working out or, you know, whether it's cardio or, or muscle building, like it's a full-time yeah. job. I start to feel anxious yeah. just thinking about it. Like, oh my yeah. God, I can't, I can't keep up. I can't keep up. And I haven't yeah. even and, like, and begun doing it. Why are we it. doing it? Why yeah. are we doing it? And, and that was the thing is that I think that um, because a lot of dietary stuff was introduced through yoga for me, mm-hmm. um, you know, just through eating for the practice and, you know, ahimsa issues, things like that, mm-hmm. that came up early, you know, when you first start studying those things. Um, so it was always like, it, it, it definitely made me start thinking like, why am I doing this? And yeah. does this actually produce uh, a subtler peace of mind or does it allow me to sleep better, recover better? What, you know, pan- panic attacks, what the hell's going on there? And mm-hmm. looking at like, well, yeah, if you're eating below calories for long periods of time, your body tends to kind of go, you know, produce a little more adrenaline, a little more cortisol. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you just, I, I learned all, I just, yeah, I got nerded out in that stuff. I just, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it then led me to like, you know, okay, what does it mean to eat for me? Like what mm-hmm. sustains me, fulfills me, what, you know, puts me over the edge. <laughs> yeah. It's really important because I mean, diet, like everything is bio-individual, right? So like yeah, even workout routines, sure. like it's all, you have to figure out what works for you. And yeah, you can try to implement certain strategies and you can play with certain strategies and test them out. But I love that you really like, you know, tried out so many things (laughs) and was like, wait a second. Okay. I got to just like figure out what works for me. (laughs) I mean, looking back on it now, it's kind of interesting because I, I look at it now as kind of like, oh, you know, everybody kind of has to go through their stuff and figure out what works for them. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of always how I looked at it. But Cause I did also get to a point where, you know, you get to the stuff where you start talking to people about it and you're like, Oh, this is what would help. This is what would help. And you kind of realize it's like, they're going to f- fuck it up. Like they're going to do it wrong, you know, or something, you know, like it's not, or, or, you know, it's not your place to talk about it. It's there. Mm-hmm. They have to figure it out. And so I think at that point it just sort of became like, it, there's nothing to talk about. It's just don't overeat the candy and sugar and <laughs> right. yeah. no. But I still do that now. I mean, I have like, I, I can't drink coffee anymore because the, the tannins in the coffee mess up my stomach pretty bad. Oh, right. So, but I can do like a really, like a nice white tea. So yeah. I have that in the morning instead. And so I'm still having some caffeine. And I noticed that like, sometimes I'll like have something else with caffeine in it later or something. And and I, I can feel those like same feelings of panic attacky kind of feelings or restlessness that come from that you know, activation of different kinds of foods, you know, Jesus. so sh- too much sugar and too much caffeine at, when you're trying to do a tattoo is a horrible thing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like yeah. your, your eyelids twitch. I mean, you just, it's, it's awful. So, How do you, keep you know, a steady hand? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's part of it. So like, you know, not having too much caffeine. So you, it's just learning how to self-regulate that way, mm-hmm. you know, with food is really interesting. 
Because then you also come across like comfort eating and why do people soothe with food? And, you know, it feels like a reward or different, you know, all the psychological stuff that comes into it too is mm-hmm. equally fascinating. So, yeah, this is, this is really amazing because that's part of what I, I wanted you on the show is that you have this kind of wonderful intellectual curiosity, like a, an armchair nutritionist. You're like a like a I'm thug. an armchair scholar practitioner. You're, you're a <laughs> thug tattooist who is you know could could really like have this conversation with with a PhD and and it's kind of it's amazing watching your 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 pursuit of self inquiry and how it applies to all these different aspects of your life and your well being. I mean that's the passion, isn't it? I don't. I mean I think that. I mean, especially like after studying a lot of the tantric stuff, you kind of realize like all, you know, all longing is the longing for God, you know, or all mm-hmm. like it, it's all like, why do I want to be, why do I want what I want? You know, it's usually some people would say, because I want to be happy, you know, or at peace mm-hmm. at peace or, you know, whatever that is. And so that's, that's the whole pursuit. And so like, why am I wanting to eat a certain way? Why do I want to perform in that certain way? What do I think is going to happen if I achieve that? That was the, you know, I think that's the sort of, that's the ego pursuit constantly is like, what thing is going to help me get better? And then naturally you do follow into some of that, you know, if you're, if you're really trying to figure that out, you realize it's like, there isn't much out there that's going to actually fulfill you. And then what does fulfillment mean then, you know? And, And that, that was, there was some big, breakthroughs with that stuff i think but it's yeah the curiosity to me is is the search you know it's the same search and it's i think it's inherent to awareness or consciousness is is curiosity like it wants to know itself yeah totally a couple of people that i've that i've had on the show that i i want to i keep asking this this kind of question is um about the definition of of punk and I think for a lot of people, I'm not a punk. I was never punk. So I mean, you, I I might might have acted that way. You skateboarded. Uh, you grew up in Seattle, and um, I feel like there's a there's a punk ethos that is uh, experimented with vegan and vegetarianism. That is that that will experiment with vegan and vegetarianism. That is uh, counterculture. That is exploring self sure, sure. That yeah. is handmade that is at its pure pure form is you know can can you know working class um people also um achieve um you know great works you know of of intellectual pursuit and and artistic uh, expression can we do it in our garage and I and I feel like that's to me this this definition of punk, and you seem to really embody that for me. And I didn't know if it was a conscious uh, capital P punk ethos that you've been living. Uh, I, you know, I was just talking to some people about this last night. I was, uh, <laughs> I think, I think what I have is a problem with authority, just that comes <laughs> that comes from parental. Maybe I don't know. Like the answer is yes. Uh, okay, <laughs> y- yes, but it was never. I never formulated the word punk because that movement to me was much more like cocaine and and aggression and that I was much more weed and psychedelics. You know, I I had a different, I I think that was a big part of it too. Yeah. Um, 
six, 14, 15, 16, figuring out that all of the structures of the world were bullshit, you know, like, right. <laughs> you know, like countries are not, there's no line on the ground, you know, it does, it's all made up. So you figure that out and, and then you realize that the people who are talking to you either are lying to you or they don't know that. And, right. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, and that's it, it, how do you navigate that as a 17, 18, 19 year old? You know, you become a you become a punky kid. Yeah. Right. So. You know, I, certainly when we when we were uh, we're, we're the same age as certainly when we were 13, 14, we didn't call ourselves punks. We right. just we just wore jean jackets with a lot of buttons on them. And one of them, kind one of them was like David, like then, the dead Kennedy. Yeah. Yeah, gr- and yeah, grunge I mean, I, was I offensive was, to us. I was, was even like, already past grunge. Green. Like. Yeah, yeah grunge, grunge was definitely like my, you know, older siblings or, you know, right. just a few years ahead of me. So I, yeah, I, I kind of tiptoed in the sort of the edge of the rave scene in Seattle. So that definitely was yeah. there and a little bit of graffiti scene, you know, so and, and it's, I think skateboarding kind of brought me to all those places. Right. Because um, you're just out on the street, you know, and you just meet people on the street yeah. who also skateboard and also go to parties and say, hey, come to this party and so we we did a lot of that, um, but then also moving to San Francisco was like a whole different. That just changed everything because it was like who I was in Seattle meant nothing to anyone in SF. So right. it was like I got to kind of reinvent myself a little. When did you move um, to San Francisco? Wait, wait, wait before you, before yeah. you talk yeah, about San Francisco, good. I want to kind of get back to this this problem with authority and I th- <laughs> and where it arises from, and then explore the move to San Francisco because I think it arises. Your dad is from, from Indiana. No, my dad's from, my dad's from Wisconsin. Oh, my my mom's from Indiana. Uh, They met in music school, I believe in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, And then intellectuals. Okay. uh, Music. Yeah. Yeah. They were were both both classical musicians. So uh, my mom was more the performer and my, my dad was a horn player. My mom was a violinist and pianist. So she, um, mm. she did really well, but then they, they went to um, Atlanta because my dad got a job there teaching music. And then they were just like the heat and everything, no way. And then they moved to Seattle. So it was kind of like they, they did that anyway. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. They separated when I was four. So, and then my mom and moved in with her partner at that time. T- so she you were raised by two moms, two moms. And then I have two, I have one sister biologically and then the other woman's daughter who's about the same age as me, mm-hmm. um, who's a musician and she's, you know, my other sister's a therapist. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, I mean, I think yeah, there was some stuff that came up with kind of being raised by women in in a woman's household, yeah. kind of with then my dad being kind of a Taoist and being a little passive. So, right. you know, male role models were not plentiful, and you know they weren't really that. You know, so maybe there was some of that ide- idealizing musicians and skaters and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So, looking for role models outside of my family and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, yeah, I found, I found Ram Dass when I was 15 years old. Um, cause my dad had be here now on the bookshelf yeah. and, right. uh, he had some like Timothy Leary stuff and Carl Jung and stuff like that. So I was looking at these things going, what the hell does this mean? Consciousness or planes of right. consciousness. I just didn't know what they were even talking about. And then I did LSD and went, Oh, that's what they're talking about. <laughs> so 
it gave me suddenly this language to begin to like explore that stuff. And so that, yeah. Anyway, but if you're, yeah, I don't know where it came from to the, to the show. We just, again, we want to reemphasize how important, critically important LSD is to your development. (laughs) Somewhat. I, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, I can't say that they weren't, you know, like they, they changed a lot of things. Um, I, yeah, I mean, they've, they've kind of been present in and out of my life various times. So, mm-hmm. um, I think they have a, a remarkable ability to, to shed light on what's inside your brain, <laughs> like what's mm-hmm. going on with awareness and consciousness and these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they can be used really poorly too, obviously. Yeah. Right. Just like the punk movement was used very poorly. Yeah. 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 Mm. I mean, it had some, it had some brilliant people in it. I mean, it definitely pushed some things around, you know, but mm. it, um, yeah, I never, I never really found punk to be, cause I didn't really get, I never really had the whole fuck the world attitude. That was mm-hmm. never, I, I was kind of like, no, the world's beautiful. It's people that suck, you know, mm. <laughs> it's, it was more of that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, I still feel like that's a very punk ethos. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think Harmony and I both share share that with you. Like our obsession was was with um, what's the fucking farm up in New York? Uh, Woodstock. Our obsession yeah. was was with Woodstock. But it was only really later that I started kind of learning about the punk movement, realizing like punk with a capital P actually was the the values that I, that I believed in, which are the mm-hmm. same ones that, that you're talking about, anti-authoritarian, critical, uh, a little cynical, and I've got to fucking do this myself. That's, mm-hmm. that's, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm all, I'm all alone here because we're generation mm-hmm. X. We're all fucking alone here. <laughs> Latchkey kids on the road. <laughs> that's it. We've had yeah. to do it by ourselves our entire lives. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, I mean, I think I was, I think I'm a little too privileged to say I was that, that hardcore, but, um, cause I, you know, I was able to go to good, a good high school and I mean, they kicked me out eventually, but you know, it, I got some good educational tools and, and I really like, I valued the idea of, of, uh, self-knowledge meant something about power for me at the time, you know, mm-hmm. like now, now I know it's like, it, it is, you know, sovereignty is the name of the game. So what, how are you mm-hmm. trying to free yourself? I mean, you know, Bob Marley lyrics, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. Yeah. I mean, come on. Like, mm-hmm. did you listen to the lyrics or were you just getting high? You know, like we were doing all high. of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> but I, I got off on that stuff. That that music yeah. started to really inspire me. Um, you know, we had that was those were the punk bands that I liked. If there was any is the ones that were just like, you know, like I remember a band in Seattle I went and saw. And I was like 13 years old. And this woman, uh, the name of the band was Image. They're not around anymore. Uh, I-M-I-J. And the woman, the lead singer was this like four foot tall black woman who was just the most punk chick you've ever seen. And she, I just remember the dumb bumper sticker joke of her saying like, question everything. And then someone in the audience is like, why? You know, and just like <laughs> dying laughing from that. And I just, you know, it, yeah. it might be also, I have a, a, a dark attraction to puns. I love puns. Yeah. So. <laughs> What I find so interesting is, is this, I mean, I feel like you're sort of the embodiment of so much of our generation that came to Ashtanga Yoga too, that really got into it where. I, it's is, fasc- I'm fascinated yeah, with that. 
Yeah, like there's yeah. a there's a total sort of anti-authoritarian, you know, into alternative kind of stuff, into alternative lifestyle, you know, experimenting mm-hmm. with drugs and different things. And then uh, anti-marketing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> somehow falling into this Ashtanga yoga practice, which is in itself kind of on one hand, like quite authoritarian and mm. super disciplined mm-hmm. and very mm-hmm. much sort of like, you know, you're in or you're out kind of mentality. Most, you know, especially in the days when we were really like drawn to it, you know, maybe it's changing well, now. And I don't feeling know. both sides, right? Like feeling yeah. like when you first got to it, you were like, I'm an outsider. I don't get this. Like, who are these people? Why is everyone like that guy? you know, whatever. And then as you get into it more, you're like, oh no, that's just, that's just blah, blah, blah is X something or what, you know, you, you know, things about people yeah. and you meet mm-hmm. people. I, I actually, I, I had a um, conversation with someone once and they, they framed it as I had said, I had done Ashtanga yoga for like nine, 10 years or something. And he was like, oh, so you were a part of that community. Right. And I had never really thought of it that way, but like I had participated on some of the early Ashtanga.com uh, yeah. web boards and chat rooms. And Is he right? I, had, Is he right? I had a blog for like four years that I wrote my daily practice journal online for everyone to read. Yeah. And you were, like you were, I would have arguments with heart. people. Yeah. I was into it. And I mean, I remember learning so much on the internet about, um, you know, different teachers and where they came from, where they started. It was kind of weird. Now that I think about it, I'm like, I'm just <laughs> totally straight up stalking these people online now. But like, I I learned so much about what what it meant to be a practitioner, you know, like how dedicated and, and committed some people were and how nonchalant and casual other people were and mm-hmm. um I didn't, I mean, I think I was just fascinated by it all more than anything else. Um, but you established that in San Francisco, right? Yeah. So yeah. let's, let's go back to Harmony's question. So you're, you're in Seattle. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but she's a slightly nonlinear. So she's in um, Seattle uh, you're in Seattle and um, you, you're finding yourself part of a um, skateboard community and how did you realize that artistic expression, uh, how did the light go, bulb go off for you? Because that seems uh, to be like the, what drove you to, to down downstate. Well, I'd, I'd always done art. I mean, that was like, I, I, my, um, my mom's bought me this giant box of newsprint when I was like, I don't know how old, like six or seven. I mean, this huge box, it was like 8,000 sheets of newsprint. And she did that because she noticed that I would draw something and then just crumple it up and throw it away. And I would waste like an entire sheet of paper. So she was like, so she went down to the local Seattle times newspaper and asked them, can I have like, you know, however many reams of newsprint. And so they chopped it down and gave it to her. So I, I had this constant supply of paper. So I was always drawing. I I always got in trouble for drawing in school and elementary school. And, um, I met some of my, you know, my oldest friends that way through drawing and connecting through that. Um, but I, yeah, skateboard art was always really inspiring, you know, like, um, some of the graphics, Uh, graffiti stuff. There was definitely some graffiti that was influenced. I did some of that. I didn't do like, I wasn't so much into the tagging part. Um, like just tagging your name on things. I was much more into the, like trying to paint murals and stuff. Um, 
so me and my friend Ben, we used to go out and and paint, you know, around Seattle and stuff. So well, well, let me ask you something because I I something that I've said to people is like, well, how did you become a good artist? Is like, well, <laughs> I always did it. You know, I just always did it. But I think at a certain age, like say, you're, like in the fourth grade, someone says to you, "Is like, wow, you really draw cats really well." Oh, like when the identity sits in of like, and I'm then an it's like, oh, now. this is me. I'm the <laughs> good one in the classroom. I, this is yeah. this is my place now. And that happened to me. I made a good head with clay that was like really looked good, and I just never stopped. And everyone yeah. else stops. Hmm. Do you remember? Yeah, that? I mean, second or third grade probably would would be where the first identity of it popped in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't actually, you know, like I I don't think I took it very seriously until high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a teacher um, named Sandra Sandra Woolley. She's still around, <laughs> I think. Um, she. Uh, she sent me home one summer with like a, a bunch of canvases and oil paints and said, just, oh. you know, go make stuff. Oh. And so I, I did. And it was, and I mean, I did not know how to use oil paint. So it was awful. It was a horrible <laughs> who, experience. Who does? I'm pretty sure I poisoned myself a few times <laughs> during that time. But I, yeah, I just would go into my basement and I would just play, you know, my, we had this kind of built in workbench in our, in our basement in Seattle. So like, it was a place where I could go and, you know, try and make things. Me and my, my, my friend, Ben, same friend. Um, that's what we would do is just hang out in our basements and try to make swords and out of wood and mm. wrap tin foil around it, that kind of thing. And so, you know, making things and working with my hands and, and trying to create things was always part of that. Um, but yeah, I don't think I, it was, it was probably high school that I went, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm an artist. That's my, that's my, yeah thing or whatever it was for me it was was, i'd always done it but then like shortly after like um, maybe six hours after i did lsd and i was like oh this is this is me now this is this is me now all i want to do is spend the rest of my life is recollecting that experience on paper and then it couldn't have been more obvious to every single adult that knew me. It's like, oh, I think he just took a whole bunch of acid. He must have done some <laughs> lots of swirly things and what's and this uh, thing. drawing of a boy holding a giant eyeball? It's like, oh, yeah, uh huh, just a uh, mushroom. Eyeball. And, yeah, yeah. Hey, one second, I'm gonna five seconds. I'm gonna show you guys something. Uh oh, I'm surprised. <laughs> oh, he has a picture here. Uh oh. Wants to show you a piece of art. Oh yeah. Wait, I have, I have, I, I, I thought this might come up. So. <laughs> oh, oh nice. nice. I'm so enough. proud of that painting. I love this painting. Yeah. I'm. So, I love this painting. This is a so painting we... of me dead. It's great. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of artist wouldn't like that. Who is this gentleman again that you painted? Um, that's a great question. Where did I get that? Um, I think he's a Japanese artist, but I don't remember who or where that came from. Okay. Okay. So you took an image and you made the painting of it. I took so that when I was doing that, I was doing a lot of pencil and um turpentine on gesso. Mm-hmm. 
and yeah. you could kind of soften it and blur it. And I think I just, it was like from an image in a magazine or something like that. And I just mm-hmm. liked it. So I just drew from the image. Right. And then, yeah. And then I was, I was doing a lot of paintings like that at the time, like the yellow background kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Um, is that one have the, is it have the resin on the top? So it's all yellowed out now. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 yeah I was doing yeah. that a lot too. Yeah. Yeah, everything I, from that era is really yellow now. I think I must have seen it in your house and I loved it and I wanted something of yours anyway because everything you do is exquisite and you have a particular aesthetic. Like your whole house is made of this kind of organic, rough-hewn wood and there was just, everything was just like, oh, I just Still love everything that he does. I love ev- how yeah. he makes his home. Amazing. And I wanted a little piece of it for myself and I thought, well, I I prefer my paintings. Um, I prefer keeping my paintings rather than just selling them. I don't. You know think- that's changed. That's changed because when I met you, I was still I still had a gallery that I was working with. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. And so Amazing. I, yeah, and I I um I was painting a lot of figurative stuff for that because that's what they kind of sought me out for when they first came. Like I, I, we had our school show and I was graduating and they approached me and it was like kind of a emerging oh. artist for emerging collectors kind of gallery. Amazing. So I was with them and, and it was, uh, yeah, it was around the time that I stopped, uh, working with them that I, I kind of stopped that kind of painting. Mm-hmm. I, I think it says on your website that in 2008, you, you drop representational painting and it almost seems like you took a uh, um, a directed, intended switch to tattoo work as your medium of expression. I kind of had to, like, in, in yeah, because I started tattooing in two thousand eight, and um, I had coming from art school. You know, you learn how to draw, uh, you know, from what you see. Like, you you really investigate the act of seeing and. Um, you know, you realize there are no outlines on things and, you know, things don't come in red, blue, and green, you know, that, that, you know, so you start, you know, learning to see and, but tattooing is much more like a craft. And so the designs don't really come from observational drawing. They come from more like, it's kind of like, you remember everybody drew that kind of S in high school, you know, it was the sort of like angled S I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Everyone drew it on their peachy folders back in the like. Oh, 90s. right. Like ZZ Top. Or, yeah. Or uh, something like that. Like, or, you know, you learn to draw something yeah. like that. So <laughs> tattooing, a lot of tattoos in traditional tattoos are drawn like that. Like there's a right way to draw a pike rose. You know, there's a right way to draw this kind of thing. And, and that's what flash kind of oriented it around. So it, you had to learn that to learn the basics of tattooing. Um, so I ended up having to kind of drop the sort of, you know, drawing everything with a pencil, you know, holding it like this and, you know, doing right. the sort of correct method to, yeah. you know, holding a pen really hard and you know, making a perfectly yeah. arched, you know, whatever. Just, so just I, for the folks at home for, and maybe even for Harmony, um, when you hold a pencil out like he did in yeah. front of you where you're the, the tip is going straight up in the air and you're using the edge. Yeah. That's all. That's how he... <laughs> it's violent and you that's how you should hold a paintbrush as well but when you hold it like a pencil you get a very different feel on the surface it ends up looking like a line rather than a um a wave if that makes it all right 
yeah. like that. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I think I was, I was also kind of told to do that by the people who were teaching me to tattoo. They were kind of like, look, you're, you've already done the art school thing. You've learned to draw that way. You know that it's in your tank, you know, great. Mm -hmm. Now learn this, mm -hmm. you know, because it'll help your career. It'll help your job. And, and I mean, I, I, I mean, I was a stubborn student with this <laughs> stuff and I'm, I'm, to this day, deeply sorry to all the people that I you know, gave a lot of lip to. But at the same time, I needed it. You know, I needed the humility of that to kind of realize it's like there's a lot I don't know about this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it, it helps my humility with that. But it was, yeah, it was definitely um, a shift. But it, the, um, as, as tattoo, but the you have a much softer edge and you have much more gradient than almost any other tattoo. And artist. I think that just comes from, I trained as an illustrator. That was right. what I went to art school for. So learning how to look at contrast and design and all of those things. Plus I'm married to a designer. So I, you know, design is a very important mm -hmm. component to that. But like what's, what a good tattoo is, is not the same as what a good painting is. So like how, you know, how do you take a van, you know, can you take a Van Gogh and make a tattoo out of it? it's a pretty bad tattoo. Like it's going right. to not hold up well. So, you know, learning kind of the different medium itself, like learning to see tattooing as a different medium than drawing or painting altogether. Mm -hmm. um, you, I kind of had to do that. But what that did was then I stopped kind of drawing a lot of representational stuff because I wasn't doing that kind of observational drawing anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. I kind of, I, I actually still to this day have to kind of go back and practice that once in a while and do others, you know, because mm -hmm. I do, it, it makes me kind of clunky and, and I lose the subtlety of how line work can be, you know? Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. One thing that you brought up on your website as well, and it maybe just slightly referred to it, but I, I only really understood it, it talking to you about tattooing is how um you're a kind of arbiter of taste in that moment <laughs> you're sitting in the chair <laughs> and some drunk girl comes in at two in the morning and wants a leprechaun on her boob there's a lot i wouldn't be there i wouldn't be there that's yeah, not that's... you you there's a, you're the last line of defense to poor taste and you do you spend a lot of time working with people on on what they're gonna actually put on their body you're not just a, a hack who does what he's told to uh yeah uh i consider that just integrity as a human being but right <laughs> um, yeah i mean i you know i think i think in the old in the olden days of tattooing ta tattooers were much more pirate like you know they were they tended to be really outcast from society or you know bikers and yeah. Um, yeah, they, they had a very, you know, and, and that kind of changed in the eighties, you know, with like, um, you know, most people look at Ed Hardy and they just see the clothing line, yeah. right. you know, That's but Ed Hardy, Hardy revolutionized tattooing because he kind of created the first custom tattoo shop. You oh. know, before that, you had to go in and pick something off the wall that some right. guy drew and that's what you got, you know? And so um he kind of said no like you can come in and he went to he'd gone to the art institute so he had looked at art in a different way and he was like well you can you can take from this tradition or that tradition or you can incorporate these colors or that you can do whatever you want it's your body do whatever you want so he kind of initiated a big spark of creativity and that's why san francisco is such a known tattoo place mm -hmm. um it's partly because of ed hardy i mean lyle tuttle as well and you know he tattooed janice joplin and all those wow. guys 
so it was um the fact that like you could do that kind of tattooing but like you start to see these like these, now there's these lineages right there's the japanese tattooing tradition there's the american traditional tattooing which also comes from european tra- traditional tattooing like in danish sailors and things mm-hmm. like that so there was a lot of um and then in the 90s you get also tribal which is now a kind of out of date term mm-hmm. but you started to see you know borneo tattoos and polynesian mm-hmm. tattoos and all of that so um, now you have this issue where all of that stuff's out there and anyone and everyone can just, you know, buy a tattoo machine nowadays, you know, <laughs> so you can, a lot of people are just learning to tattoo on their own without learning anything about, which is what a really an apprenticeship is. It's learning how to deal with all the different types of people you're going to have to interact with. Just like in every other field of endeavor, <laughs> the fucking tattoos have exploded into like just it's personal crazy. garage bullshit. <laughs> everything is this I, way <laughs> i mean to some degree yeah i mean you know you can't i mean in i mean now they're trying to regulate things or doing things in different ways but you know the real like the the people in the tattoo world kind of self-regulated that by not giving you know little shits jobs right away you know they would right. have them come in and work and you know meet people work at the front desk answer the phone so they actually had to deal with individuals who are asking about tattoos and then they you know they heard the way that people would talk to them and negotiate all of that so uh, i think it just kind of became obvious to me that like the interaction i'm having with that person is the same interaction i'm having with a canvas but this person has a whole conditioned history that is different than mine and mm-hmm. I have to reckon with that. And I never had to do that with a canvas before, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, and then where does that put me? Who am I the artist? You know, like, you know, there's a little bit of like, there's so many ego traps and stuff in there. Mm. Yeah. So, um, well, yeah. I mean, some tattooers are some of the most enlightened people I've ever met. Like, like they're just a, so on it. Having a canvas that can talk back. <laughs> yeah. And say, ow, you know, <laughs> I had a teacher once tell me like, well, you think you have a lot of integrity, but like, then you're going to make five waterfall paintings and then five skull paintings and all five of your watercolor color, what your waterfall paintings sell. How many skull paintings are you going to keep making? And I was like, Oh, come on. But like, that's a real, that's, that's, that's your market talking to you, but you're in this position where your market is talking to you while you're (laughs) literally talking to you while you're, and they want more skulls than they want more skulls. Good for you. Um, no, I, I, the skull for me. (laughs) I, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the things that you learn, for example, is like as a tattooer, it's your job, it's your career, right? People know your name. It's out there. You work at this shop, Mm -hmm. whatever if somebody comes in with a tattoo that you don't like, like you look at it and you go, Oh, that's horrible. You would never say that mm. because it's on their body. It's like they, oh. they, they love it. They might love it and it might be very meaningful. And so for a professional artist to then say that's crap right. is sort of like, you know, way to judge someone, you know, like way to like, you know, it doesn't matter. Like what, what's beautiful to somebody is, is crap to somebody else. Yeah. But I definitely go into a situation with a client where I'm like, you're asking me to do something and I have to channel that through my own being in some way. And if you're asking me to do something that 
doesn't align with who I am. I'm like, there's other tattooers out there for you. It's fine. You know, I just, I have to have a certain amount of like, I want to do this or, or I hate my job. <laughs> like yeah. I, I dread going to work and I really just don't want to have that. Okay. Well, t- uh, well tell me this because I remember one time Melissa said, Oh, if you're so fucking your, your wife, she said, if you're so fucking curious about uh, tattooing, go get one, go get one right now. Go see, hmm. see if, uh, see if Eric, see if you'll let Eric put one on you right now. And I, I, chick- I want to mm-hmm. go see Eric. I want a tattoo now. I completely chickened out. I wasn't getting a fucking <laughs> tattoo. I wanted, I actually, you had a, you had a beautiful drawing of skulls with like three skulls or is a skull with three eyes. <laughs> I'm not sure. I wanted that one. Something like that. Gorgeous. I don't know. It's got um, one of those around here. <laughs> oh, where was I going with that though? Um, your process with mm. with making a tattoo, I'm I'm intoxicated. I'm 14 years old. I walk 14. into your tattoo shop. I already how kicked you out. I I'm go, already kicked you out. How do I go <laughs> from I walk in the door to getting the leprechaun on my on my on my deck? You don't. They What's send the you steps? Away. What are the steps? For <laughs> okay, first first I tell you to wait until you're 18. Yeah. Uh, and then I I make an appointment for you the next morning after yeah. your hangover, uh, after your, your drunken debacle. Yeah. And then if you actually show up, like, so first maybe I'd charge you a deposit. So, right. you know, you give me a hundred bucks and give me an appointment. And then if you don't show, hey, that's your problem, buddy. But, yeah. you know, if, if you're going to come in and say, oh, I want one. Well, it's like, put your money where your mouth is and show come up. back. So. Yeah. And so like, yeah, make them come back. And then, um, I, you know, uh, there's that, have you ever heard the comedian Pete Holmes? Yeah, of course. He has this, he has this great bit about how the British have figured out language, uh, which is, uh, never, you know, I'll never hold on to the turd. So if someone (laughs) says something to you that is kind of awkward or something like that, and you just say it back to them in the form of a question, right? um, (laughs) because it makes them own it, right? They have to hold it. And yeah. so can we do an example of that? Um, yeah. Like, let's say you came in and you want a, a tattoo of something. Um, Could I have a tattoo of a, of a splendid duck, please? Yeah. So, okay. So what does the word splendid mean to you? Oh, <laughs> now I'm holding the turd. Well, you have to define it because I don't know how to draw splendid. You know, right. whimsical is a great one. People say, I want it to look more whimsical and, Almost a hundred percent of the time, you can draw a little swirl, and people go, "That's it." For some reason, the little <laughs> swirl means whimsical to people. I don't know why. Um, you know, it's it's it's. I don't know. There's so many little things like that in tattooing, but it's it's. Um, yeah, the conversation is a part of it. Like I t- I try to do consultations with everybody so that I'm on the same page and I know what they want. Um, I try mm-hmm. to stay custom like that. It's something that I will draw, even if it's from a reference or something like that. That's fine. Oh, okay. I just, so I'm, I have I'm, to put it in my own hand, you know, I'm 18. It's 1030 in the morning and I've brought this. Picture. I've got the, I've brought in a box of lucky charms with the <laughs> leprechaun. And it's like, okay, so where do we go from here? Uh, okay. Well, I would definitely make sure that it's tattooable. Like it's a tattooable image. Mm-hmm. So it has to have some, some outlines, some solid black in there somewhere. Um, you know, color by itself isn't going to hold up very well, you know, mm-hmm. just as, you know, alone. So, you know, I talk about the fundamentals, where they want it, how big, um, 
you know, if, if I'm not making an appointment, if it's a walk-in, then I would draw that image, make a stencil, put it on, have them look in the mirror, have them say oh. yes. And then once they're a hundred percent and they sit down and then I say, are you ready? And then we go. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, you know, we have forms that they fill out, you know, I mean, just in Washington, just walking into a tattoo shop is a form of consent because you don't have to walk into a tattoo shop, (laughs) you know, there's no reason unless you're interested in tattooing. So So, I I could have the lucky charms leprechaun on my, on my ass by 1130, by 1130, but 45, by 1135. Okay. So it depends on how big. And would you ever say to me, have you thought about any other kind of leprechaun than this one? Have you thought, is there something else? Is there another direction we could go in? I might, I might ask that question. It depends on the person. Mm. Some, some people just, you know, they're like, I know what I want. I want what I want. And, you know, I'm not going to try and convince them that they shouldn't because that's the other end of the stick. My judgments about what someone should or shouldn't get tattooed should not get in the way of their decision to get tattooed because then I'm throwing my cultural values on other people. I'm telling what other people should and shouldn't do. That's if that's coming from a place of judgment and, you know, I mean, it's, it's a good way to get in a fight actually, you know, somebody Mm -hmm. says, who are you to tell me what I should or should. I had this situation with a guy, he came in, he was not drunk, but he was definitely had been drinking And he wanted a tattoo of a Confederate flag on his forearm. (gasps) And this is Seattle. So I was like, um, you know, hey, no, I'm not really interested in that. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, is anyone else interested in that? And I looked around. I was like, anybody want to do a Confederate flag? And everyone was like, nope. And so I was like, yeah, no, no, thanks. Mm -hmm. And he was like, why? You know, what are you guys racist? And I'm all like, uh, huh? And he's just like, well, it's white. People, well, yeah, so he said racist towards white. Yeah, people. so he said he said um, you know he said that, and he's like, "What? So my money is no good here?" And I'm like, "No, your money's fine here. Your idea just isn't. This isn't. Nobody's interested in that." And he's like, "Why not?" And I'm like, "Well, because around here, that's a battle flag, and that's its history, and you know, I don't really want to be a part of any of that. Like, you know, you can go back to the south and get it. I'm not judging you. You know, mm-hmm. I just can't do it." Yeah. Because that's I'm the one who has to. I, it's my name on there too. That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's the the integrity is not from a place of you know it's not coming from a place of like you shouldn't do that. So therefore, I'm your gatekeeper. You know, it's much more like I decide which things I also want to be associated with. You know, mm-hmm. and I don't want to be associated with hateful tattoos, even if it's not. Even if he just see, sees it as southern charm. You know, that's that's what he was kind of mm-hmm. trying to say to me. But then he threw in the like, what are you racist against white people? And I was like, okay, we're having a different conversation. Yeah, I think we know where <laughs> we know, stand and, now. And I'm, yeah. I'm, we're done. You know, there's the door. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think there's a great deal of integrity in being able to do that, al- mm-hmm. align with your values without judging other people. You know, it's, it's totally. It's, what it's if a I, pretty difficult thing to do. What if I wanted the Dukes of Hazard car on me, on my arm? <laughs> instead didn't you say to me once that like joke tattoos really age badly and like you shouldn't try and be Uh, funny with a tattoo as long as you understand that it's a joke tattoo and you're okay with having a joke tattoo it's like a dad joke that never goes away you know Mm -hmm. it's you know it's it's um yeah no, there's like a you might pun look in back there somewhere. And wish, wish that you, you didn't. Well, leave. you know that's that's the whole thing. Is like I I kind of look at tattoos as like they're the scars you choose, you mm-hmm. know. So like it, you know, it's 
if you decide you want to get Yosemite Sam on your forehead, you know, who am I to tell you not to do that? I might say that's your job. I wouldn't do that. (laughs) And I don't really want to be the one to tattoo it. But if you get it done, I'm like, Hey, brave choice, I guess, you know, (laughs) I don't know. Like, Oh man, I see a lot. I mean, I see, I see tattoos all the time that I'm like, I would never, ever, never do that. I I see a lot (laughs) more face tattoos now. It seems like, Back in the day, like Dennis Rodman seemed like be the the farthest edge of what you could do to yourself in public, but now it's way we're way far beyond Dennis Rodman. Yeah, well, and and tattooing mm-hmm. actually, when you, I don't know if you remember in the eighties and nineties, but like there was a magazine called Modern Primitive. Oh yeah, I do. I do remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, I, I remember seeing... themselves Modern Primitives. Yeah. So there, there is that, there is that scene in Seattle around the time that I got my first tattoo. And so tattooing was always to me also connected to piercing at that time. Um, and piercing was also connected with the big hole uh, ears, bondage S and M movements, especially Mm -hmm. in San Francisco. There was a lot of like, um, you know, rope tying and leather work and tattoos all went together. So, um, you know, there, there is a whole level of tattooing that people go into where it's the whole point is to experience the pain and go through that. Um, there's other groups that are just like, let's just black it all out. Let's just make a mess. Let's not, don't worry about any kind of representation whatsoever. And, you know, there's, there's everything under the sun now. And that's, that's what, I mean, anime tattoos are big now. Like that was never something that I would have ever guessed, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I, I watched Akira when it came out, <laughs> like I, I, thought it, I thought it was great. And I was like, what's this? But I never thought about tattooing it. Right. So, that and that's the other thing. My first introduction to tattooing was, um, there is a, a, a book called skin shows. That was the name. It was like a, I think it was only four issues or something, but it was like full color, you know, eight and like a half or big nine body nine. like full or half body, yeah a like. lot of tattoos like full body tattoos and and uh episode the, the fourth issue in particular had uh a tattooer who i still respect a lot alex binney and it had another tattooer from thailand who i don't know who was doing the sakyant tattoos the like mm. thai magic tattoos yeah. mm-hmm. and he was a full monk right yeah. so shaved head with tattoos all on his head the yellow robes and then just covered in ink and blood like uh, this photo of him and you know you imagine me at you know 15 16 years old i see a monk covered in blood and ink and art related and i'm like 100 this is great yeah. how do i get yeah. involved yeah sign up so that really inspired, and that's i that you know my first tattoos were uh you know i mean aside from this little schmutz on my hand um, you know, I did uh, the the seed syllable bija mantras on my shin. Um, well, yeah, I did, yeah, I did like um, chakras up and down, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, they're not. I mean, the, the chakras are not always the elemental bija mantra because they're the they're the the earth element, fire element, water mm-hmm. element, and that can be installed in chakras, right? But mm-hmm. um, but so yeah, I didn't I didn't know that at the time, but um. You know, I kind of I related with the idea of a structured like layers of understanding or something like that. And and mm. I did that with a I took a electric razor apart and built a tattoo machine out of it and wow. figured out how to do it. So and it was inspired by that because I saw what they were doing it was like big, long, pointy needle. 
little cup of ink, stab it in the skin. It was pretty straightforward. <laughs> oh my God. But, you know, I, I learned pretty quickly that like, okay, some things work, some things don't. Um, yeah. I bought a tattoo machine from a guy in, yeah, like, I think I was 17, 16, 17 at the time, but he would sell it to me even though I was younger. <laughs> but I think he sold me watered down ink and, you know, I did some horrible tattoos on some friends and quickly went, this is, I don't know how to do this. So yeah, I kind of put it away. Right. Yeah. 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 So it, it didn't really. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't start tattooing until I was 31. So I, I went to art school, did all this other stuff, did the gallery work and then tattooing kind of presented itself as a possibility. And I was just like, I feel like I was made for it. You know, how does tattooing present itself as a possibility? <laughs> Uh, so I had started because I was working this job for the sculptor. I was finally getting paid pretty well. I had insurance. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I could afford to like spend money on something <laughs> for the first time after college. Yeah. yeah. And so I started getting tattooed by, uh, Holly Ellis, who is the owner of idle hand in San Francisco. Yeah, I've been there many times. And she, um, I, I wasn't tattooing when I started the process, but I started getting a sleeve from her and it took me about a year. And, Within that year, I had um, uh, I'd had a friend of a friend who was had just finished her apprenticeship and had just bought a shop uh, in San Francisco, and she needed help. So I called her, and within like 24 hours, was working as her apprentice. Wow. Um, I didn't know that she didn't have the maybe the information that I wanted it, it at the time. She didn't have the experience, mm -hmm. but it was a foot in the door. And right. getting your foot in the door in San Francisco was damn near impossible anyway at that time. Yeah. So I was very lucky to get that. And then because I was getting tattooed by her and I never said anything about, um, you know, I think I had asked her about an apprenticeship because, you know, I wanted to know more about it. And she was like, oh, I don't do that, you know, and no way. And then when she knew that I had started tattooing anyway, she was like, oh, you know, and, and I didn't know you were doing that. And then after about a year of tattooing, she she asked me to come work there, mm. um, which, you know, I was really flattered. And I think it kind of went to my head a little bit because then within about a few days or weeks, I was it was made very clear to me how little I knew. And it was like starting an apprenticeship all over again and right. having way more bosses. And <laughs> it was it, that there was, that was what triggered a lot of the panic attacks and stuff. Wow. Was, you know, the, the ego identity of who I thought I was at that point at 31, mm -hmm. thinking I had already accomplished something and then coming into a new thing and people being like, you don't know anything about this. Like, yeah. you know, so little, and it was so humbling. So. Yeah. Still, still, still think about that. <laughs> yeah. Idle Hands was about three blocks uh, east of my apartment in San Francisco, mm -hmm. so I used to walk by it all the time. So sometimes I would go to. Um, yeah, you'd pop in once in a while. Yeah, just to say hi. I, I always mm -hmm. like saying hi to you. Um, I'd go to the Aquarius, the black hairdressers to get a haircut because they were the uh -huh. only people that knew how to work with curly hair. And then I would <laughs> stop by Idle Hands on the way home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> no, I like, I mean, we lived in that. Yeah. We lived a block and a half away. I mean, we, we moved, I got that job working there and we moved into our apartment around the corner the same month. So it was kind of like, it kind of just all worked out. It was one of those scenes so where you're great. just like, this is too good to be true. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, those, you know, five and a half, six years in that neighborhood were the best. Like I loved it there, but yeah. it was kind of, that was the thing is that I worked and lived within two blocks 
And so I very rarely left the neighborhood except to like get the hell out. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Everything else. Yeah. So it, 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 that's what that, I think that's what motivated me to leave and come back to Seattle was just, I felt kind of stuck, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I felt a little priced out. Like I loved yeah. having a neighborhood. It was something that I'd wanted my, yeah. you know, my whole adult life was to live in a neighborhood. Like when I was in Chicago or New York, I didn't, I didn't really dig in and really live in a neighborhood and then be able to go to a coffee shop and everybody would know me there or the laundromat uh, or the grocery store and just get to know everybody in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was hard for me to leave, but the idea of moving harmony to San Francisco and both of us sharing a one bedroom apartment for $2,000 a month and a child. It's so hard. No, no. So did, yeah, but it wasn't being priced out for you. Is like you wanted to get out and break uh, out of a. Well, we, we felt priced out in the sense that we couldn't we couldn't step it up without right. really increasing the rent. So we had a really you know we were really we had the same like about two thousand a month for about twenty five hundred when we left. Yeah. Um. For yeah, that one bedroom. I think you you'd yeah. come over there a couple many times. times. Um. Yeah. So that was you know it was a really nice place, but it was like um you know, it, we're, we're paying rent and the rent's going to go up eventually. And mm-hmm. it's just, you know, where, where can we go? Like, am I just going to live here until I die and work at the same place, have the same schedule, eat the same <laughs> thing? Like, it, you know, I think we just both were eager for a change. And, um, you know, Melissa had been working at Apple for a while. So she, she was exhausted from the commute, you know, right. so three hours a day of yeah. back and forth. So, I was yeah, it just, at Stanford. Yeah, so yeah. the the you know my family was up here. My mom and my my dad's on Whidbey Island. My mom was here. She's now back in Palm Springs. But um, so there was a nice like uh, it seemed like there was going to be a nice little family and all of that to kind of come to. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there was you know there was a nice feeling of that. But it was also like that thing of like you come home and it's not what you left. Everything's different. Yeah. yeah. So. It felt very new again. It felt yeah. very like I had to rediscover Seattle in a whole new way. Mm-hmm. Um, That's nice. Still am. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's still. I don't. I don't know. I mean, we're and we. You know, we always during this time of year, we're just fantasizing about you know Sebastopol and <laughs> you know living down there. So it was really it was bittersweet because I could see that you were going off up north and you were like going to make a home. You were going to buy a house. You were going to. Well, that was the idea. We wanted to. We still haven't. I mean, we still don't have a house. It's it's just as expensive up here now. You know, I mean, we're paying three thousand something now. So it's you know, but it's um, yeah. Just it just hasn't worked out that way for us. Like we we've kind of looked around, and you know, putting down roots somewhere is always a little bit like because we don't have kids, so we don't have a reason to be near Mm -hmm. a school or you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, my dad's on Woodby Island, but you know, it's, there's not really any reason for us to have to live up there and tattooing up there is not really possible. So, mm-hmm. um, but so, you know, I just, yeah, I, I like it here and we like it here. The weather's amazing. The nature is amazing. So mm-hmm. that's, that's the big sell is the rain is a little sucky, but, <laughs> mm. but it's only for like three, four months out of the year. And then the rest of the year is gorgeous here. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah. yeah, I would, I would trade um, minus 40 for, for rain. <laughs> yeah. That's why, that's why going back to Madison where Melissa's from was just out of the picture. No. Winter is just no thank you. <laughs> right. 
Like, and, and it only snows here enough to be like, oh, this is nice. And maybe we get a couple days off work, but it's never like. <laughs> and then it know. melts. I mean, we had an ice storm here earlier that was pretty bad where like yeah. literally nobody could drive anywhere. And, you know, it was that was a little sketch. But, mm-hmm. you know, that only lasted three days or something, you know, it was done. I have a I have a quote I want to read to you that you wrote. And I want to ask oh, you about something that um, <laughs> it's uh, I was just really taken by on your, on your website. <clears throat> by dissolving the subject object divide. I began to discover that my art practice is truly a process of healing and becoming whole. Each piece is an artifact of a process of self-discovery that peeled away another layer of separation, a process of liberation that truly never ends. And I I see you kind of working on this kind of um, mandala over and over and over again on a kind of... um, Tibetan sand painting. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm interested in where where this all becomes unified because it's it seems it it seems like this initial spark of creativity and interest in being and consciousness is all kind of coalescing for you. Yeah, it's all the same it's all the same thing to me. Um I mean, ultimately speaking. Um God, where to start? Um I think I think one the one one thing is the difference between like drawing what you see and calling it a thing, you know, like that that like when you get into like seeing the act of seeing and how you know when you when you know and you do this in in non-dual teachings a lot, right? In tantric teachings you do this a lot where you 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 notice that the experience, like an experience, contain always contains a subject and an object. That you cannot remove a subject and and have just an object because who sees it? How is it known? Right. Mm-hmm. So, when you start to see that this duality between subject and object is is created in inherently in experience or or our interpretation of experience, but it is not like so. For example, if I have the view of this screen. I have a left side and a right side, but there is no divide between left and right. This, this is a, a, a way the mind does it, right? The way it, <laughs> it separates into things and in plurality. So, you know, like I have two hands and they're, they seem like two separate things, but they're still connected, you know, so there's mm-hmm. only one thing, but within language, we need to separate those. So I started to see that kind of non-duality in... Um, art making because art making is built on so many contrasts, you know, line contrast, mm-hmm. color contrast, value contrast, compositional contrast, size contrast, all these things. And and what makes a good painting always seem to be some sort of unification of these opposites within a painting or within mm-hmm. a particular medium. So I saw that, you know, I, I think at first I kind of saw it as kind of like a a cool trick kind of like coming from skateboarding. It was like a cool trick that as long as I balanced the dualities, it would all kind of work. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course that gets my brain going into like, well, then where else does this happen? And, and you see this in um, Rupert Spira talks about this a lot um, where the, the, these moments of non-duality are actually constantly happening. Um, and we refer to them as like love, truth, beauty, 
you know, and so he describes like truth as having, you know, two opposing views coming into understanding. They now stand that the standing is on the same ground under them. Right. And love is the seeing yourself in another, you know, so it's the dissolve of other, mm. um, you know, mm. and beauty is this collapse of the subject object, like where you approach a painting and at first you see a painting on a wall, then you see a boat and then you see brush strokes and color. And then you just, you're in the painting, you're one with it in some mm. way. And that's the, you know, so this oneness thing kept popping up. And of course, that led me down the whole path of Advaita and Tantra and, and that stuff. And, and of course, I researched that like crazy and got really hardcore into that. And, um, and then that leads to a lot of also like weird um, cul-de-sacs, you know, like thinking cul-de-sacs that people get stuck in where you get stuck with like spiritual bypassing and, you know, this sort of transcendence, you know, like, um, you know, that uh, one of the ways I've heard this talked about is beautiful. It's like the meditative path or renunciate path is the path inward to say, I'm not my name. I'm not my body. I'm not my title. I'm not my position in the world. These are all titles and names, but they're not really what I am. Right. So you do this stripping away process. And then what's left is this pure awareness, you know, that which is aware of whatever arises and it knows itself because it is that which knows. Right. So it, you find that and then, you have this beautiful transcendent experience where no thoughts make sense and you go, holy shit, what the hell was that? And you might even call it just spacing out, you know, but there's this moment this, yeah. and it's timeless. It's eternal. Mm. It's present. It's, it doesn't have a name or a title or a, you know, a meaning or anything like that. And then what do you do with that? You know, and I think a lot of people, even a lot of monks, renunciates get stuck in that spot and I think that's where then you get into the tantric turn, you know, where you then go, well, how do I live a life aligned with that truth? You know, mm -hmm. that, that the, the reality of things is one whole, but it is by our perceiving of it that it separates into these dualistic mm -hmm. uh, you know, parts and pieces. So the whole materialist paradigm collapses and, you know, blah, 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 time is a construct and you're stuck in that world. And you're in, you have to navigate that from like, you know, people in the world that maybe want to take advantage of those misunderstandings or partial understandings so uh yeah it also makes you very wary of gurus and what does that even mean and so you know <laughs> it takes you down quite a rabbit hole yeah. yeah yeah so then you came to i should make a mandala <laughs> well so then okay so i had been getting into the idea of painting because like painting always seemed very like a static snapshot hmm. um and I don't, you know, animation. Yeah, you could do that. That's a whole other thing. But, but I, I didn't, I, that didn't interest me because that was just lots of paintings again and again and again and again, each one moving a little bit. I wanted to work with a painting where there was movement in the painting somehow. Mm -hmm. And the concept of the mandala is, is the, is the difference between a mandala and a circle is that a mandala has a point and a periphery. Mm-hmm. And this is also the symbol for zero. It's also the symbol for non-duality. It's, it's a, a brilliant symbol because it is, it is the whole and the point simultaneously, mm -hmm. you know, or the transcendent and the imminent in one. Mm -hmm. So there's this constant movement when you work with a mandala, like a yantra or something in, in those traditions where you, you move from the periphery towards the center. And at the center, there's a wholeness, a completeness, a singularity, and then you expand back out 
and you embody the the power of that radiance in yourself. So mm-hmm. practices like dissolving your your sense of self, you know, and then reinstalling a sort of version of yourself in which you're full and complete and embodied. Those are very tantric practices. Mm-hmm. And I just started to see that everywhere. Like I just started to see how a triangle represents the triad of nowhere, knowing and known. And, you know, the square was the earth element and it encased and boxed in and compartmentalized and, uh, you know, just all these kinds of things. And and just notice that like all forms of art are expressions of these mm-hmm. in some way or another. Mm-hmm. So it kind of just opened it up and it was really weird. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> mm-hmm. there's no rules anymore. I, I started tearing up a little bit because I just remembered how <laughs> how sad I was when you when you left San Francisco. It was really upsetting to 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 lose. We had some good talks. We, we had some we had really some good nice... talks. I always wondered about that because I always wondered, like you know, I, I felt like the the student who was constantly like nagging you, like. <laughs> So what's, what's, you know, what's this person like? And why does he do that? I think I remember having this conversation about Olaf that I was telling Lisa oh, about last night. The most infamous Olaf. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I had had this, you know, I don't know, man crush on him, yoga man crush. Of course. And because you know, he's just, <laughs> he's just a, you know, beautiful moving body. And, you know, I was like, wow, how does he do Kapotasana like that? Like, I just could never open up my body that way. Yeah. yeah. And, and broken like over 18 bones in his body, motocross, bike racing. Like, sure. And had been 300 pounds, has been Mr. San Francisco weightlifting. Like, yeah. what? What? Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's, that's kind of the thing. So I've, I've, this is where it's really interesting, actually, what, Harmony, what you said about this, um, th- this contrast between like yogic practice being, or, or, you know, being somewhat of a dogmatic teacher down process. Mm-hmm. But yet then there's this constant like having to overthrow the the, the tyranny of rules and transgress to some degree, um, which that's something I've always related with. Um, like I was fascinated with sadhus for like years, mm-hmm. still am, mm-hmm. um, because Agora and Tantra are very similar, but they're very different in certain ways. Um, Agora is much more performative, you know, it's much more about showing people the transgressions in order to challenge their ideas of normative culture. Right. Um, whereas Tantra is a little more secretive about it traditionally, you know, um, the Agora book, yeah. um, that you have harmony. I, the first time I ever, fa- I ever saw it was Eric lent it to oh, me. Yeah. It was his copy. The Svoboda book. Yeah. The yeah. Svoboda book. Yeah. Robert yeah. Svoboda. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's it's it. fascinating to me, but because I also the history of all that stuff, putting that history in context, mm-hmm. that was really important for me mm-hmm. because to understand where Patanjali was in the history of yoga and mm-hmm. who he was in his community, like he was kind of more of a compiler of information. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like what the word yoga meant at that time was very different than what we refer to it now. You know, mostly we're referring to asana practice. We're referring to Instagram. Um, <laughs> yeah yeah i mean really <laughs> it's a hashtag learn about it um yeah so it's yeah, uh yeah and then and then like going from there and like um you know like james mallinson do you know him he's Mm-mm. at oxford he wrote a book uh was it roots of yoga okay i had it up here um but he, he a brilliant scholar and he just recently discovered uh, or announced on on one of his little things that he actually they've discovered now that the term hatha 
from Hatha Yoga is actually derived from a Buddhist text. Mm. And it's from a Mm -mm. Mm. And so it's a very monastic approach that was mostly done by men. And it was mostly focused on the power of seminal retention to stimulate Kundalini. That's what I do. Um, Yeah. You know, (laughs) don't we all, (laughs) but, um, but how, you know, like then, you know, how vigorously those ideas were challenged by, you know, the Vedantic schools and the tantric schools of the time. And, um, you know, also like, Tantra was more built for householders, you know, it mm. wasn't really for renunciates, you know, <laughs> and that, that was a big thing for me is that I had always had this very strong renunciate vibe mm-hmm. that I had to sacrifice everything constantly. And to the point where it became really self-sacrificing, you know, like never actually giving myself any self-care or yeah. <laughs> nurturing. Yeah. And so, you know, to find the tantric, in, you know, inversion, I should say of these, of these things really helped liberate what all of those renunciate practices were for, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like doing the fasting that I did, you know, I used to do 10 day water fasts, you know, and things like that, just to, just to see what would happen, you know? And it, you know, you did, you had experiences, you had immersive experiences and things like that, but you were like, so what, you know, what did I learn? Oh, I learned that you can really have, you know, addiction is not just a drug thing. It's, it's a, it's inherent in our craving and our need to be alive. So, Mm. um, you know, working, starting to work more around needs. And that was, that was really the introduction into like nonviolent communication mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff is working around mm-hmm. feelings and needs and not so much oriented around strategies and outcomes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, no better yeah, way to save a marriage, by the way. <laughs> many times over, many times. I, look, the book is on our table right here. So. Nonviolent communication. <laughs> Yeah, here I got my I got my feelings and needs chart right here. So. Uh, That's, nice. That's a daily when practice. When you I feel because of this. <laughs> yeah, so so there there's the danger, right? Like so mm-hmm. like anything else if you deep dive into this stuff, you find the holes, you know, and my sister was very she's the one that turned me on to the nonviolent communication stuff initially. Mm-hmm. And um you know, like when I first got into it, of course I got nice and zealous about it and was like, you know, this is for everybody and everyone should do it. Mm -hmm. And it's a great, I think it's something that many people need to learn, but Mm -hmm. it's also like one of those things that if it's not done authentically, you know, it can be pretty ugly and Mm -hmm. manipulative. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, there is a, but there is a, there is kind of a hedge or, you know, a paradigm shift that happens with it, which is that you really become conscious of the fact that whatever your problems are, are your problems. Mm -hmm. You know, like if I don't like something, it's because I don't like it. It's not, there's nothing wrong inherently with that person or thing. Mm -hmm. And so when you have anger and things like that, and you realize how much you're projecting the story of you made me feel. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, if they could make you feel however they wanted, they would make you feel happy, you know, and they, they can't. So, you know, and, and, you know, anybody who's ever tried that knows. So, but to take, to start taking responsibility that your feelings and needs shape the way you see the world Mm -hmm. and your ability to ask for what you want and make requests is also like, there's a skill in that, you know, Mm -hmm. asking in a way that's more likely to get it, to get someone to meet your needs, you know, Mm -hmm. not even get them to meet your needs, but to want to like Mm active, like, do you just want them to do what you want? Or do you want them to do it with like, I want to do that for you? Like, Yeah. And I think that's just, you know, that's a himsa right there for me. Totally. <laughs> like, yeah, 100%. I think that's a great example of a himsa. Yeah. 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 And, and, I think it, and that, it comes up a lot. 
Yeah, and it it kind of points also to the fact that I think sometimes with the yoga practice and and tradition, you know, and lineage that it it really the focus is so much on me, me, me <laughs> that mm. we forget actually it's it's about our relationships with everything mm-hmm. around us and it's not just mm-hmm. like you know what you're saying like okay nothing outside of me can make me feel that way so i need to work on myself but then also it's like how are you showing up in the world for other people mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. yeah yeah the difference between an intention and impact yeah mm-hmm. um you know like uh one of my uh this teacher Yvette Erasmus, she, she talks about it like the, the circle of influence versus circle of concern, mm-hmm. you know, like we live in a time now where like, you know, there's 10,000 people influencing me every day, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and multinational AI companies writing script to influence my behavior every minute, yeah. you know, and so there's a lot of intention to move me around and do things. And what's the impact of that, though? How many people do you actually interact with in a day? you know, it's like directly, just, just, to <laughs> just like one three. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, if I'm at work, you know, I'm influenced by all these people. If I look at my Instagram, but I'm actually only interacting with maybe two clients and two or three or four coworkers and Melissa. And that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. How am I navigating those relationships? Though? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, am I snapping at people because I'm absorbed in what I think some tattooer in somewhere else thinks of me? You know, I'm, I'm lost in a fantasy world. I'm yeah. literally living a dream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas if I actually connect and go, I'm, I'm feeling upset because I'm really needing some acknowledgement or, you know, yeah. something like that, then I can actually ask for what I need with those around me, you know, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and that's big with clients because a lot of clients don't know how to express themselves in ways like that. So to be able to not hear uh, the criticism and demands, like this is something that I think is kind of a secret magic to, to the NVC is to never hear a criticism or demand from someone, even if they mm-hmm. say it in the most critical demanding language. So like someone can say, you better do this for me. And you say, oh, so you have a really strong need for me to perform in a certain way for you. (laughs) And you give it right back. And and then they go, yeah. And you say, well, that's not going to work for me. So no, thank you. You know, and (laughs) like to be able to, to maintain my composure and do that and not get triggered by their, you know, whatever idea they show at me, you know? Yeah. I love that. I love that. Hearing, hearing the need underneath the. The words, I, the emotions. I, it's hardest to do with the people you care about the most. So it's, yeah. you know, oh, I mean, right. me and Melissa mm. struggle with it because we assume that we know what each other's thinking sometimes. Of and course. Yeah. Like that's that. There's a great book. Um, well, I don't know if it's a great book. I haven't read it, but it's a, <laughs> it's a book. It, it's uh, a summary of this study they did. I think it's called The Problem with Empathy or something like that. Oh, that sounds familiar. And it's, yeah. And it's, um, Basically, I think it's based on these these series of tests that they did that they were testing whether or not empathy was really effective or whatever. And what they found was that people want to be empathetic. They want to help other people, but we're really bad at guessing what other people need. Right. Like we're extraordinarily bad at, at knowing what somebody else actually needs. We think we do. Like we look at someone and go, they just need to clean up their act or whatever. Right. You know, we, we can do that, but we don't actually know what they need. And mm-hmm. so the only way we can actually know is to ask. Yeah. And asking someone what they feel and what they need in our culture is is almost like pushing it with some yeah. people. So there's a lot about boundaries and yeah. and you know, those, you know, why you're asking this person what you're asking them and 
do you have their consent? You know, yeah. or even a big part of the show is is me trying to find out what someone's childhood wound is and seeing if they'll agree to talk oh, about it. God. <laughs> I, I hope it's obvious. Right? <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Oh dear. <laughs> that's, I we're, think all, that's... we're all wearing it on the outside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's mm. so. That's so. I think that's so important because you know that's a lot of like in coaching techniques are just that right versus having consent yeah. to to enter a conversation with someone around coaching, but then really like not presupposing you know how to fix someone or that they yeah, need right. to be fixed at all. Right. Like realizing yeah. they actually are just fine the way they are. Yeah. And, yeah. and if they want to change something, helping them figure out how they're going to change it mm-hmm. based on what yeah. they already know about themselves. Right. Because yeah. really, and I think the same in spiritual teaching. Yeah. yeah. Same thing in spiritual. Te- Cause I, I've definitely, you know, especially, you know, like, so, so from my point of view, there's, there's these two pathways, the mm-hmm. inward path, outward path, but there's also like two distinct things going on. There's awakening, which is like recognizing your nature as awareness and all of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'm just summing it up, you know, that. Yeah. Um, but, that pure consciousness thing, you, you know, know. You know, blah, 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 yeah. God, whatever. <laughs> um, there's that waking up. And I think that that happens. Um, I think that happens on many levels for many people throughout your life. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, um, I think people who have certain talents are awake in certain ways, you know, mm-hmm. so you can have an awakening to hearing and, you know, become really gifted musically at a very young age, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think awakening happens on these different levels, like mind, body, spirit, whatever, all that. But then there's also liberation practice, mm-hmm. which is how do you work with the fact that you have been given the conditions you have and you might need to do a specific kind of modality or work in order to work to, to harmonize that relationship or stabilize that you know, work, you know, self-regulate yourself in, in your conditioned world mm-hmm. that you live now. So, so I look at it as that way is that, that the, the liberation work, um, is what most of us are talking about when we're talking about yoga practices and things like that. Um, psychology is that, you know, yep. uh, somatics are that even psychedelics are somewhat related mm-hmm. to that. Um, you know, MDMA assisted therapy, for example, but awakening I think is very dangerous to do with people if they have, you know, traumatic things going on, you know, and if you unlock someone's sense of self before they're ready, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like having the, you know, the veil ripped off and it can be incredibly terrifying to realize you're, you're nobody and nothing's going on and it's all, you know, I mean, (laughs) it's, it can cause the realization. And and, when I was 17 and I had taken 10 hits of acid and I realized how trauma informed I was. (laughs) But 17 to lose your identity at 17. Mm. Okay. Imagine losing it at 48 while you own a business and you have two kids and you're just going to get a tattoo and some asshole says something to do you that pops your head open. Like (laughs) I feel like I have to be aware of that because I, you know, I'm interested in those things. So I like to talk about those things, Mm -hmm. but I also notice that a lot of people, if they're not ready yet, like, I don't, I don't want to be the guy that does that. That's Mm -hmm. like, I I kind of feel really weird when I see teachers who are like, that's what I want to do is wake people up. I'm like, dude. Yeah. I know. I know. Careful. (laughs) Careful what you wish for. And you have to have like, you have to have a heart of stone. And, I, and oh, the way yeah. that I mean that is that you're not tender-hearted. You mm-hmm. understand what is good for someone, and you are incredibly um, 
considerate of their growth, no matter how where they already are, what they've already achieved, if anything. And if they're fucking sobbing in front of you because you've broken them, you're you know, like, yeah, you're unmoved by that because of their if you're well, and you're karmically entangled. It's your now. It's your karma to teach them yeah. if you're going to put yourself in that role. Yeah, and you know, I I love the way Rupert deals with this stuff. Um, you know, he's like, I don't become a teacher unless you ask me a question. Uh, and I love that because it's yeah. like, that's to me, it's so much the pure guru tattva, you know, like mm-hmm. it's the whole thing. And like I did, I did the deep dive course with Christopher Wallace this last summer in the Guru Gita. Like we translated every line in the Guru Gita and looked at it philosophically from the tantric view. And, um, you know, to really see that that text, even though many people read it in this sort of like, I honor the guru as a physical person, mm-hmm. the text itself doesn't really make that claim. It actually sees it as a principle that comes through people. Mm-hmm. So it comes through us through lineage, but it's not, it, it can come from anywhere as well. You know, it's, it can come through a book or a video or an experience like a psychedelic, you know, mm-hmm. um, I heard this great line by Pete Holmes the other day. He said this thing about how like we're we're so locked in our materialism that of course God would show itself in the form of a material, like a substance. <laughs> yeah, right. And I thought that was brilliant. That's I was like, genius. that's so true. And like, how many people are you know having these awakening experiences watching YouTube videos? And, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's happening. Like, a- I, I ASMR videos are. Oh profound. yeah, yeah. Binaural beats for days. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's cut some bread. Let's hold our breath for eight hours and see what happens. Let's do it. I love. But like you know, I, like, I see um, people have that. You're like Morpheus though in the Matrix. You know, like like there's a. Yeah, dude, who do I after, wake up and say, hey, it's a documentary. What dangerous are you do? to free a mind. You know, and you strangely you married Carrie Ann Moss. Of all the people to I marry did. in the world, you married uh, Trinity. Which have you seen a picture of Melissa Chevalier? <laughs> Fucking dead to yeah, right. She does, she she does like have Carrie Ann Moss. Yeah. Very odd. And like uh, Amelie meets Carrie Ann Moss. It's true. Amelie. <laughs> I, I wanted to tell you a story. I, I wanted to remind you of a story. I she her knee exploded in the corner of the room, and I was on the other side of the room, and it blew up. And I went over and see how like what's going on? How are you doing? Like you really jumped into this Marichas and a D. Like you've been away like three days. You want to, but now your knees fucked. I was like, oh dear. And you came over and we got her down the hallway, down the stairs. I don't think I was there. Oh, okay. I don't think I was there. But we got yeah, her down I was the at stairs home. and we got her into a taxi and maybe she went to the hospital or she went home. I'm not sure. And I called you and I said, she tore a meniscus. <laughs> and uh, I was like, really? How do you know? It's like, I just have a feeling. And then uh, you went to the doctor. It was the loud and, popping noise. That yeah. So you went to the doctor and you, <laughs> and you got it and you got it. Um, what do you call that? When a doctor. MRI? when they give you X-ray. their prognosis. Oh, a, a diagnosis? They, gave, diagnosis? they got the diagnosis. It's torn M- 10 MRI. And I cheered. Yes, I nailed it. I was right. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you said, you're such a dick. It's so true. I'm a horrible yoga teacher. I was no. so proud of myself. Hey, you know, your anatomy lessons were paying off. I'm proud of you. 
I just want to say, if you out there in Radioland are interested in taking the blue pill, uh, you can go to Instagram <laughs> and find Eric Jacobson and get yourself tattooed. And you also can start and initiate these conversations. <laughs> have your mind blown but open. But you have to ask the question right. first, or he's just going to sit there quietly. He's just going to sit there and tattoo. I'm happy to just sit back and watch. <laughs> Next time we're in Seattle, we're coming. We're gonna, That's it. I want to get, yes, get Harmony <laughs> tattooed under my collarbone. I'm so I excited. Love it. I'm so excited. I, wait, I have, I literally have Harmony tattooed oh, on my wrist. Fuck room. you. That's my okay. girlfriend. My girlfriend. <laughs> it's mine. Got she first, is Sorry. my property. I'm a, mm. I got, I got one quick question for you before you, before we go. Sure. I've always wondered. So, that that uh, drunk girl that comes into the tattoo shop. <laughs> you. <laughs> uh, the tattoo artist says, "Oh, we can't uh, do tattoos if you have alcohol in your blood because it uh, changes the consistency of your blood." I've always wondered if this is true or not. Uh, okay, so <laughs> if you came, if you went to the bar and had like two drinks, yeah, it's it's. If you come straight to the tattoo shop, it's not really going to affect anything. It's not a problem. Pe- people drink and get tattooed all the time. Right. Uh, we don't really like it if you're drunk <laughs> because you're going to be moving and all of that. So most tattooers won't touch you. Right. Yeah, there's um, that as well, the moving. <laughs> and if you're drunk, also coming in and asking us to do something like that, like we'll probably just say we'll set you up an appointment. Yeah. So you can know. come in later. Yeah, it, if it's, where's, I mean, some people, some people would say yes. Some people would just go for it, but you know, I yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah. Well, thanks to whoever. But if you brought a beer, me, I would not. <laughs> prevented me from getting the Guinness harp tattooed on my body when I was eighteen. Oh, that's a good one too. Where's Carrie? I saw Carrie. Where was she? I want her here. We're getting tattooed. <laughs> It's pretty close. Drunk girl spiral. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Luckily, we don't get a lot of that in Seattle. Was, yeah. We got a lot more of that in SF because we were right down the street from yeah, uh, the Coronado and across the street from Maltov's. Yeah. Yeah, we, we partied pretty hard in those. That was those a Seahawks bar, I think, right near there. The big Seahawks bar. Just down the street from oh. down. Um, Doyle's. Doyle's was a massive Seahawks bar. I could not get really? this game in on Sunday morning if the Seahawks were playing because 30,000 Seattle Weird. Uh, denizens <laughs> would walk into that fucking, into my bar. Wow, it was like an omen for you. I think it was just because the 49ers had sucked so bad for a while. Fuck the 49ers. Just... They're like, Fuck. we're moving to Seattle. Mm. <laughs> I, you know. I had I had that one year with the Giants won the won the World Series on Halloween and that was it. Oh, I, mean, I was like, that's great. What a great moment. That was the best. The whole city erupts into just oh, a, man. a cheer from you could seven miles square. In every great. home you could hear the cheering. It's it amazing. Madison yeah. Baumgartner for the win. Oh, yeah. Amazing. So cool. <laughs> well, give my love to anyway. Melissa, man. Really do. cherish so fun. our friendship. Yeah, I hope it's great to see. You. I hope it keeps going into the future. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. Man. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony with me, your host Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Stop.